Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you'll find such things as in-depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his second Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus. And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought, that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory, as Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. Well, good morning. Thank you for being here today. It is March the 12th, and uh, this week for some people it may be a spring break. Uh, Next week for some, a lot of Wichita people, a spring break. But I've decided I'm not going anywhere for spring break, so I'll just keep meeting if you all come back. Unless somebody here, if a bunch of you are going to be gone over spring break, we can cancel next week. But if you're going to be here, I'll be here. So, uh, good. Well, that'll actually give us a chance to finish the book next week. Today, we're going to finish chapter two and a little bit of, we're going to just look at a little bit of chapter three, but we'll be able to do the end of chapter three next week. Uh, but glad you're here this morning. We're going to continue to look in Second Thessalonians chapter two. So if you have a prayer card, let's begin by just asking the Lord's blessing upon our time and inhabiting our study of the Word. Let's pray together. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Chapter 2, Part 2, we looked at the first 12 verses last week, and I just got that podcast uploaded. If you want to, if you missed it or you want to go back and check it out, feel free to. Uh, but this, this last few, four verses of the chapter, uh, the, the apostle is reassuring them. You remember last week we talked a lot about the concept of the Antichrist, the fact that there is a coming end to everything. Christ will come again to usher in the the eternity. We talked about what some of that means, and and I won't go back over too much of that because it's really hard to review that. It's just just too much there. But he he quickly turns the conversation at the end of chapter 2 to some very reassuring words. The people were undoubtedly uh, confused. 
They've been confused all along because of these false teachers and these persecutions. And he's trying to reassure them and remind them of what he has taught them and remind them of the truth. And so now he says in verse 13, and I'll just read 13 through the end of the chapter for the moment. We'll go into verse chapter 3 just a little bit. Let's stop with just these, these first four verses, last four verses. Verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's stop there. That sounds like it could be the end of the book. <laughs> he kind of Paul has a way of just closing times of kind of prayer and thoughtfulness in chapters, even though it's not the end of the letter. But I want to go a little bit verse by verse here and just talk about a few words with you this morning. The, the idea here that the apostle is, is sharing with them right up front is that he's bound to do this. We look at that word bound. Yours might have some different words. What are some of your words there in verse 13? He says, but we are bound. Anybody have anything different there? Your versions? We ought always. Yours is the word ought. Okay, so I'm talking about the word bound. There's a corresponding English word ought. We ought to. Um, what else do you catch? Anything different from bound or ought? As for us, we can't help but that. Can't help but, okay? So there's kind of a, a compulsion there. And the idea here is that this, this is a Greek word uh, that, that speaks to the fact, it's, it's, I didn't write any words on the board here, but I'll just give it to you. It's called, uh, it's called ophilo, ophilo, okay? And it means literally, it does mean that we're bound or ought to, uh, but it, it has the idea that we're indebted. He has to do it. He owes it to them. Paul is saying, I'm indebted to God. I'm indebted to you. I owe this to you. I must obey and do this. That's, that's the feeling that he's giving them there. I owe this to you, to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord. So don't miss the fact that Paul isn't just uh, well, you know, I can't help but do this. He's really saying, I have to do this. There's no choice. And and he goes on to say why. He says, he calls them brethren beloved by the Lord. And this last half of the last phrasing of verse 13 is so important. Um, if we look at verse 13 and 14 together as one thought, okay, Paul does an amazing thing here. He brings the whole sweeping 
theology of our faith into, into two sentences. It's, it's amazing. Let's hear those two sentences just put together. He says, Beloved, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's taking them all the way from beginning to end. The last word he speaks is glory, to the glory of God. That would be heaven. That would be the ultimate purpose. We're all on our way to glory, okay? But he's saying God shows you. The reason I have to do this, the reason I'm bound to do this, is because God chose you from the beginning. Does that mean there are some people that he does not choose? I think that we have to say that's a great question. If he chose you, then there must be others he didn't choose. Well, you just look at, at the area where they were, you know, the infidels and, and uh, yeah. idol worshippers and the Jews. He didn't select any of those. So you're right. So how do we understand God's choosing? That's a very important thing. It's a, this is a phrasing. The scripture talks about God's choice, God's election sometimes. And a little bit through this study, we've talked about this idea of the doctrine of election. Paul raises this thought from time to time. Clearly, God has chose them, but God has not chosen others. Well, I, you know, he chose Paul because Paul was the worst of all kind, you know, persecuting everything. Yeah. He had to choose him. Otherwise, he would never, never have turned. So. so he understands this idea of being chosen pretty well, Paul does. And what, what, do, you, what do you think he means? I want to take just a few minutes and, and talk about this, because it's critical for us to understand this. What does it mean to you that God chose you? Who in here this morning could testify you really believe God chose you? I think all of us did. Okay. I think he set up an encounter for me. He set up an encounter for right. you. Okay. I mean, he set it up to where I was at this place and, and spoke yeah. to my heart and gave, and I had a, I had to make a decision. Ah, yes. I had to make that decision then if I wanted to go through with what he was asking me to do, or I could have rejected it. Okay. So you see his choosing as an opportunity for you to see him, to meet him, to encounter him. And then to choose him. Right. Then you choose him. He chose you, but now do you choose him? That's is that a fair way to say it? I Maybe. Did. Yeah. Well, doesn't he choose everybody? But we have a a mind to make a decision whether to accept. Yeah, I, I like that phrase. Doesn't he choose everybody? This is something Christians have wrestled with for years and years, centuries and centuries. Good Christian. Teachers will come down on different sides of this equation, and you can read theologians, and they always say, well, this is one of the most difficult things to understand, this idea of God's choosing, God's election. And, you know, I guess I used to agree with that because I used to be torn by this, how difficult it is. You know, there was, there, there's, in our world, you know, everyone in this room, we're, we're Protestants, so we, we've grown up in the, in the Protestant Reformation and the, everything that's that's born out of that, for most of us, you know, the idea of theology kind of began in the, the 16th century, and most Protestants don't take time to study the ancient theology of the church. 
the early Christian fathers over the first three or four <clears throat> centuries, which is kind of what I do in this Bible study. That's the way I study the word. I always go back to the original early church and say, how was this thought through? How did these early church fathers teach it? Before I get up and work my way into the Middle Ages and start thinking about what, what maybe some of our heroes of the faith have done and thought. And, and so in doing that, and there was a time in my early ministry where I was always confused you know, I was perplexed a little. You know, it's, you know the Calvinists uh, who believe in God's choosing uh, that cannot be rejected. They truly believe that God chose some and didn't choose others. And that basis of that choice is in God's own sovereign mind and heart. And it's God's sovereign choice and election and nothing you can do about it. Your, de- your destiny is determined one way or the other. You can hope you're in the God's elect, but ultimately you can't really know until you get to the end. It's always, well, that's a good question. Why pray for people? If that, that, what I'm just describing there is a very high, high view of Calvinism. Not all Calvinistic, what today would be called Calvinistic Christians, not all of them think that way. There's a lot of hybrid Calvinism going on today because of the, the other half of the Reformation, the other part, the Wesleyan part, well, really it started as Arminian, the Arminian uh, theology that Wesley uh, later uh, picked up and embraced. And that was this idea that there is free will, that there is this idea to choose. A lot of Calvinistic thought has kind of been watered down by a Wesleyan and Arminian thought that, so that there is this encounter in which we can, we can choose, but yet we still can't know uh, for certain whether we're there. Um, once we choose it, we can't lose it, that sort of thing, you know. Uh, and all this gets really complex unless you come back to the beginning. And for me, this got really simple. Okay, I learned this, and I'm going to give credit to where credit is due from where I learned it, okay. I learned it from very renowned Eastern Orthodox Christian scholars, okay? Eastern Orthodox Christian scholars, not Roman Catholic Christian scholars. I differ completely from Roman Catholic teaching on this. But some ancient, some very ancient Eastern Orthodox scholars, fathers, and some even some more modern teachers. And, and here's what I learned. It all depends on a right understanding of who God is, as best we humans can understand God. Okay? The idea of God's choosing us is so powerful. And I believe this is what he was telling, Paul was telling to them. What I, what I think that the Thessalonians heard when they heard this, because they had their teacher was the Apostle Paul. Their pastor was the Apostle Paul. He, he birthed them into faith, you know. And what I think he taught them was that our God, let me just say it the way I can here. Let me set my coffee cup down. Because I have to talk with both hands, you know. (laughs) Our God is holy. Our God is loving. Our God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all, as the Apostle John said. And our God is all-knowing, all-powerful. And so from the beginning of Time and then before that, there was our God. And our God looked across all in his heart and mind that he would ever create. 
and he was able to know everything that would ever happen. Everything that would ever be done, he knew that mankind would would disobey him in the garden. He knew that evil would be populated in our world because he already knew of Satan's fall from grace and, and he knew what evil was. Our God didn't invent evil, but he knew what evil was. And, and uh, evil was the choice that free beings make. And when they choose, evil is the consequence of that choice when they choose to disobey like Satan did, like Lucifer did in heaven. And, and was rejected and thrown out of heaven. And so Paul's teaching them all this. Our God has created us with the free will, the ability to choose. He chose us, but we need to choose him because our God is love. And love never forces itself on anyone. See, when I begin to think, oh, yes, it's all about who I see God as, If God is holy, pure, and loving, God is pure and love, he cannot force himself on us to make us do something we don't want to do. That's critical in our understanding of who God is. And so much of human emotion, so much of human trauma and trouble is born out of a poor understanding of who God is. I can't tell you how many times I have visited with people in counseling sessions and and behind their trauma and their trouble and their their illness is this poor understanding of who God is because they see God as someone who's either uh, not helped them, forced them to do something, could have helped them better but didn't, um, just... This idea that the blame is on God, you know. We can't blame God for anything (laughs) except for loving us, okay. So when we come to the the understanding that God is ultimately love and light and that he has set in course a motion called creation and the world and humanity and freedom and that we then are called to choose, then we can understand that, yeah, we're chosen in him. Paul says you're chosen from the beginning. There must have been a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There must have been a decisive factor for God to make a choice for some and not a choice for others. A choosing for (coughs) salvation for some, as Paul says, you're chosen for salvation here, he says, from the beginning but not salvation for others. There has to be a deciding factor. What would be God's deciding factor? That's what we're really talking about here. What do you got, Ken? I was just going to say that you hear story after story, people that claim to be Christians but really aren't, Hmm. but then God puts something in front of them that forces them to make a decision. Yeah, absolutely. It's very good. They're, they're, they have, we ultimately we will all have to make a choice. Okay, there's no one you can't not make a choice. Jesus said, "If you're not for me, you're against me." I guess in that sense, we we cannot not make a choice, right? So, what is the deciding factor? What 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 do you think could be the deciding factor for God to choose some and to not choose others? Well, well I think. 
colloquy, the fact that a lot of them just rejected. Okay. So, so that that's a knowledge, but he would know that in the beginning. He would know they're going to reject him. Okay. Is that what are you thinking, Mark? Well, I'm. I'm I'm trying to lead you like a lawyer would lead leading questions. What do you think was God's? And I'm a poor lawyer, aren't I? What do you think is God's deciding factor to choose some and not choose others? I've kind of danced around it here. I've said it in so many. But are there any other factors that you kind of think might be? I I just when Adam and Eve sinned, yeah, God didn't stop loving them. Right. Right. He covered them. Amen. He says, you're not going to live here, but I still have a place for you. Right. I, it, and Christ died for all sins. All sin and all people. All. Right? Right. Can I say that? Right. Yeah. We are chosen. Yeah. All humanity is chosen by God, aren't they? Yes. And... Yeah, what I'm getting, what I'm getting at, you're 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 saying exactly what I'm, what I want to hear. I I, I hear your heart. You see, I'm, what I'm saying, the reason I'm kind of leading you on in this is that I want you to realize there is only one obvious answer to the question. There's only one obvious answer. God is either all knowing or He isn't. Okay, and He knows from beginning of, from before the beginning of time, if you're going to choose or not. If you're going to believe or not, if you're going to, and let me, let me go on further. Not only if you're going to choose or not, or believe or not, he knows if you're going to persevere or not. Okay. Because remember, it's not just about making a choice. And we'll get to that at the end of the study today. It's not just about making a decision to believe. It's about living out that decision. Okay. So I, I guess what I, I, I hear your heart, Mark, that's so beautifully said. God chose all of humanity for salvation. But all of humanity doesn't choose to choose him to be their God and to be their Lord. Because you're giving us free will. God was looking for me. I wasn't looking for him. That's right. He's the God is He was He was looking for me. And those I, I had no desire. What never thought of it. That's so powerful. You, you were, your testimony is you weren't even looking for God. No, no, not at all. But he found you. I wasn't raised in the church or anything like that, so I had no. What a powerful testimony to be able to say, I wasn't looking for God, but God found me. I mean, that, that is powerful. Uh, My testimony is in one sense, maybe the same in that God, I believe God found us all. Okay. God is. No one comes to the Father but through Christ, and Christ, God is always the primary. He's the author of faith. He's the author of everything. And he's, and he's if we'll open our eyes, he's all around us in creation and, and calling out to us. But, but, you know, I was born into a family that went to church. I was raised going to church. I was uh, so seeking God that I kept switching from church to church, trying to figure out where is God really? You know, is he in this little church or is he in that church? Is he in the Catholic church? Where is God? You know, I wanted to find the ultimate truthful expression of God because I was seeking him. But, you know, even though I was seeking him, I didn't find him. He found me. He always finds us. 
because he knows where we're at. He knows what we need. He knows how to move. And that's the assurance that, that, that Paul is trying to give these people. From the beginning of it all, God chose you. I mean, doesn't that feel good? Doesn't that make you want to love him back? Wow. Why me? You know, why me? We watched a baptism service the other night at Central Community Church. 121 people were baptized in one night, in one service, all because Pastor Bob, the pastor of that church, stood up and preached about at the end of his visionary. He laid out his vision for the church. And then he, uh, that was a four-week series on the vision. And then he he transitioned to a sermon on baptism. He says it all begins at baptism. And he laid out a, an amazing sermon on baptism. And I loved what he said. That it, that it because what, I, what he said, you know, some Christians argue over is baptism what saves you or is faith what saves you. And the whole point is, is baptism's not an option. If you're saved, you get baptized. It's not an option. And and he began to lay it out. And he gave every, everybody in the everybody in the congregation had. Had these cards, and you either you, you're either baptized or you're not. You know it, right? Everyone here knows whether they're baptized or not. And he and he said, if you're already baptized, you don't need to get rebaptized. If, if you want to, your heart wants to, because it's going to be a statement for you. That's okay. Then go ahead, come on. But he had everyone sign that card. If you want to, if you want to be baptized, I want you to bring that card forward and lay it up here at the altar. Hand it to one of us, Pastor. And you know what? Hundreds of people came forward. It was like 150, over 150 came forward. They collected cards in both services, over 100 people, who had never been baptized. Most of them never been baptized. All ages, kids, adults, senior adults, all amazing. And then, boom, the next night he says, we're going to do it. We're going to baptize them. And it was, it was the most amazing thing I think I've ever sat through. Yes? Did they have to be members of that church? Nope. Didn't have to be a member of the church. He never even mentioned that. He's talked about being in Christ. Because somewhere I read in the first church in Nazarene that you had to be a member of the church. No, we don't. The, the Nazarene church doesn't teach that either. Um, we, don't, we don't teach that. To, you, only have, you only have to be a member to vote or get elected to office in the church of the Nazarene. Oh, okay. But, but not, to, not, to, uh, not to be me. baptized. Yeah. But, the, but the, I guess the point was, several, the reason I brought that up, Many people, they had these big cards and they could write their name on it. And because they didn't stop, I mean, 121 is a lot to do in one evening. And there were three different baptismal pools and they had, uh, so it was going one and then the other, you know. And they would come up and the, the, the praise team was all singing during this whole time. And there was, uh, it was just a spontaneous time of worship. People would hold up a card and that card would say their name on one side and on the other, something that they wanted, how they felt. And many of them, you know, the word that they wrote, some would say happy or blessed or, you know, something like that. Many of them said chosen, chosen. There's that beautiful thought that those people being baptized knew that God chose them. And you could see each one of them getting oh, baptized. They the, stay on that. The glory. So everybody could see. Oh, the glory each on each face. 
the, the Gloriani's face was amazing. And they had camera views of people. You know, they had these cameras that would look right down over the water, you know, as the people are coming up out of the water. Every one of them came up with a huge smile on their face. Yeah. Uh, truly one of the most powerful events I've ever experienced. And I, and I guess I wanted to say that because I wanted you to see it's all because we're chosen. All the grace in our life, all that we experience is all God's gift, and it's all because he chose us from beginning of time, from before all time. God looked across all time and knew who would be saved and who wouldn't. He knew who would accept him and who wouldn't. So when it says difficult things to understand, like in the book of Romans, Paul writes in the chapter 9, I think, or or 10, I forget which chapter, I think it's 9. He talks about Esau I've hated, but Jacob I've chosen. You know, well, did God really hate Esau? No, God doesn't hate anyone. God's incapable of hate. That's an idiomatic expression of the time to um, to show God's sovereignty. That yes, you know, the tradition said the oldest child inherits everything, and God chose to use Jacob, the younger of the two twins, to bless everything through. Why? Just arbitrarily because he hated... I know it sounds like that when you read it in English if you don't understand the context. No, God could look across all of time and know Esau's heart and know Jacob's heart. And he knew which one he could build the kingdom on. Because God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't make poor choices. If he built his kingdom on Jacob, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there was a reason. Because he knew Jacob would be faithful. As faithful as Jacob could be, Jacob was a human like you and I and failed a lot, just like you and I do. But uh, I, I won't spend a lot more time on that. I just want you to see, chosen from the beginning. For what? Chosen. What's the number one thing we're chosen for? To be saved. The number one thing we're chosen for is to be saved. That's what they were chosen for. Not. after death. And all the way through to glory. Chosen to be saved. Follow with me here. And how are they saved? Through sanctification by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Okay? He doesn't, excuse me, my voice is getting raspy here. He doesn't try to make a theological point here, saved by faith. Okay, that's not the point he's trying to make here. He wants them, you know we've we've had, so he wants them to hear that they're, they're chosen to be saved through sanctification. In other words, it's through the process of God making us holy that we are saved. Okay? We're saved now, and we're saved for eternity. He goes on to say, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, there's your, there's your faith part, belief in the truth. The people have to believe. Okay? It's through God's Holy Spirit. It's all from his Holy Spirit. It's all the sanctifying grace of his Spirit. But the people have to believe. That's you and I. We have to believe. Believe what? Believe in the truth. The truth. Because they're struggling with what is truth. Because they have all these false teachers trying to mislead them. Well, what is the truth? The truth is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. If you're ever wondering what's true and what isn't, just hold it up to Jesus. Would Jesus do this? Would Jesus think this? Would Jesus have me do this? Now, you can find out what truth is pretty quickly. Because yeah. life, Jesus' life is perfect. And his words are the greatest teachings ever. So then he says, to this you're called. This is their calling. 
They've been called, these chosen Thessalonian people, just like you and I, they've been called. We've been called. Called for what? Called through the gospel. Okay, that's the good news about Jesus. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the final outcome. From the beginning, chosen out of God's love, through the sanctifying grace of the Spirit, that we would believe in the truth, and that through that belief we would, which which is the belief of the gospel, the story from Paul, he says through our gospel. Notice those words, through our gospel. Who's our? He means the apostles, not just him, but him and Timothy and and whoever's with him, plus the other apostles, the, the leaders of the faith, through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory. That's the salvation. That's the final salvation. Glory is when we all get to heaven. Everything this side of heaven is just a little short of glory, no matter how beautiful it is. No matter how beautiful and wonderful it is. So then, so you can see in verse 15, he's really transitioning here. So there are probably some words here I I forgot. I'm not looking at my notes. I'm getting off into preaching. I'm sorry about that. But the word beginning, when Paul talked about in the beginning, some of your Bibles might say something different than in the beginning. Some of yours might say you were chosen as first fruits. Does anybody's Bible here say that? First fruits? Does yours, Dennis? Okay. If you go into the the message, I think. Okay. Some translations have chosen to use the word first. You were chosen as first fruits. That's technically not correct. Okay. The word here in the Greek is very clearly the word arche. A-R-C-H-E. Arche. A-R-C-H-E. Think of like, and it means, it literally means the chief first of something, the first of something. So there's this idea of beginning, okay? The beginning of everything is the RK, okay? The first fruits leads you to believe, well, there were other fruits even uh, before the first fruits. First fruits are the concept of like the tithe, honoring to God, the first of your fruits, that sort of thing, which is a great biblical point. Not the point Paul's trying to make here, though. He wants him to see the beginning of time. Now, so then in, uh, he says the idea that you're chosen for belief. He says uh, that word truth there, belief in the truth. The word for belief in the Greek word here is the word, uh, actually it's the word faith. Okay, so we could actually read this. The word in the Greek is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. So we could actually read that, say, to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So he's, he's faith and belief, you know, are, are one. Okay, what you believe in, you have faith in. And so then he says, uh, to obtain glory. I think there's an interesting word there. We need to look at that. We've actually seen that word before in our studies. It's a little harder word to pronounce it's it's uh don't know where i laid my behind me you never know where i'm going to lay these markers do you okay it's it's uh peripoesis peripoesis p-e-r peri 
Peripoesis. Peripoesis, and it means literally to own something. Okay? You have ownership of it. So when Paul is telling them here that they are going to obtain, and in this case he says obtain glory, obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying you can own that. There is coming a day when you are going to be the owner of God's glory through Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thought, to hold on to it such that you own it, to obtain glory. Now, he finishes out here, uh, verse 15. You see the, the lead-in is, so then, okay? So then. In other words, he's going to direct them. Here's what you need to do. Because of everything I just told you, you need to do this. Okay, he's about to give them some marching orders. So then, now that I've told you this, what I want you to do is stand firm. And hold on to the traditions which you were taught by us. Again, who's us? Timothy, Paul, perhaps uh, Silvanus. All, again, the, the apostolic tradition, in other words. The leaders that are out there planning the churches. So then, brethren, stand firm. Hold fast to. The, the Greek word there is kriteo, K-R-A-T-E-O, kriteo. That means to hold something fast in the way that you rule over it. You're holding on to it because you're the ruler of it. So stand firm. Don't You cannot be moved from this. Don't let yourself be moved from this. And hold to the traditions. I find this a fascinating point here. We need to spend just a little bit of time talking about the traditions. What are the traditions that they're supposed to hold on to? What do you think the traditions are? Commandments. Commandments. Okay, well, anything he teaches them would be maybe kind of like in that vein, but certainly I'm sure he taught them the Ten Commandments. What's this idea? You remember we talked, I introduced this concept a week or two ago, and I can't remember which week when I thought about this with you. This whole idea of tradition versus Again, Protestant Christians have a little trouble with this thought, okay? Because five or six hundred years ago, five hundred years ago to be specific, the Protestant Reformation was was uh, it happened because of Christian leaders that were rejecting traditions, okay? They were rejecting traditions that they thought Rome, the Church in Rome, held that they said were unbiblical. Okay? So you got people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and other Protestant reformers are rejecting the traditions of Rome. Okay? And so there became this wide gulf between Roman Catholics and Protestant Christians. The Protestant, and so much so that the, the argument of Protestant Christianity became, we don't need traditions, we're going to stand on the Word of God alone. Uh, you remember, you, you've heard that before, haven't you? I, what's that song? The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. <laughs> Teach that to the kids, don't we? But, but what is that saying? What is that saying? Wouldn't the traditions be the traditions of honoring God? Like, 
the communion and the, the, yeah. the praising and the worship and like the structured. So if we're going to, it's a little hard for us to stay. I can't stand here and tell you, here's the list of traditions, okay? Yeah. The only way we can really know what those traditions are is to go back into history, yeah. into the archives, if you will, of historical, archaeological even, context and see what did the first Christians do? How did they worship? What kind of things did they do at worship? That's the traditions they learned from Paul and others and as they were passed on. So before we just reject all tradition, let's be very careful because the Bible tells us we are to embrace tradition. Now, I want to make this point really clear. The New Testament The Bible as a whole, every church that was planted didn't even have a Bible. There was no printing press, okay? They were lucky if they had a couple of scrolls in the the Jewish synagogues in different places. But these churches are being established and they're being built without the Bible. Now that's a challenging thought, okay? So what are they being built on? The traditions and the word of mouth, he says, by word or by letter of the apostles. Yes, but weren't they, weren't they uh, also using the uh, Jewish scrolls and the Old Testament type stuff? They are. You can bet people like Paul knew them, but they didn't have them. What I'm trying to say is yeah, they don't have yeah, copies yeah, in every church. Yeah, yeah. So, And the pastors who are chosen, like Timothy, this young pastor, he's taught by Paul. He didn't have a seminary to go to. He didn't have a Bible to carry with him and to start parsing and looking at sermons. Doesn't the Jewish have a lot of traditions, though, that they... Observe uh, that are maybe not biblical? Yeah. yeah, let's look at it. You're right. So turn with me back to Matthew chapter 15. Because I think we need to balance the words of Jesus here with the words of Paul. Okay? And let's figure out what they're really talking about when it comes to this tradition. So in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus brings this whole thought up. And I'll just read a little bit for you, starting at the beginning of the chapter. Because this is about a conflict over a tradition, actually. It's over the tradition of the washing of hands, the cleanliness traditions of the Jewish, Jewish tradition, okay? So it says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of our elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. And then he need not honor his father and his mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, or the traditions of men. So what is Paul talking? He's talking about the, the Pharisees particularly had this tradition. They had this tradition where they could say, Oh, everything I own is, is holy and given to God, so therefore I'm not going to leave it I'm not going to give part of it to my father and my mother and you know, my family and things like that. 
And he's saying that's not biblical. He's saying that's not the tradition of God. That's not the commandment of God. The commandment of God is to honor your father and your mother. So here they had found this little way to twist the tradition of God, okay, the commandment of God, into a tradition of their own. Jesus calls these the tradition of men. He's quoting Isaiah the prophet here in Matthew 15. The traditions of men rather than of God. So when we hear Paul saying, pay attention to the traditions that we taught you, whether by our words or by our letter. Okay, so Paul, we know that the early apostles wrote letters. We have them in the, we have some of them. We have the ones God knew in his providence that we would need. But there are lots of letters, I'm sure, written that we perished, that we just don't have, okay? But the truth is, when he came and he established the church, he taught them. He didn't come with a rule book. He didn't come with a manual. He didn't come with a catechism. He was the walking rule book. He was the walking manual because he'd been trained by Jesus Christ himself in the spirit of God, as were all the apostles. So, where do we get that? Well, let's think back into into John, in our study of John, chapter 16. What did it say in John chapter 16? Let me just read it for you here. I'll turn to it real quick. Didn't have it marked. Won't take me but a minute. It says in John 16, verse 12, Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you. He's talking to his disciples, the apostles. I still have many things to say to you that you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, that would be the Holy Spirit, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, and for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare to you. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, there's a whole lot of things that you need to learn that I can't teach you in my little three years here in this last couple of months I have with you. But when you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, when you receive my anointing of the Holy Spirit, he's going to open your minds, he's going to lead you into all truth. Okay. These apostles knew stuff that you and I can't even imagine. And we could say, oh, great, what are we going to do? They were all lost. We don't know all their traditions. They were lost. Well, were they? The church was never lost. This is, again, why I say let's go back to the beginning. Let's look at the earliest churches. Let's look at the earliest writings. And let's figure out how did they teach? How did they minister? How did they worship? There's always been a tradition within the church. And that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to help us to understand. So when we look at things like the, the some of the traditions, let's just pick an easy one to criticize for us. An easy one to criticize is the, the Protestant Reformation was fought over the tradition of, of the teaching of purgatory. Okay? The teaching of the idea that you could buy indulgences to get your souls of your loved ones out of purgatory and into heaven. That's a man-made tradition, okay? That was understood to be a man-made tradition. The Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, has they have certain scriptures they can point to that they will try and defend that teaching, not the indulgences, but the, the fact of purgatory. But that's their, that's their evolution in theology. 
If you go back to the beginning, you do not find that teaching. Okay? I don't think the Apostle Paul ever taught anybody about purgatory. He taught them about glory. Okay? I'm not trying to put my Catholic friends down because they believe in purgatory, because the bottom line is it'll all come out in the end. If the purgatory is not a second chance, they don't believe it as a second chance. They believe it's for pe- it's a purifying process because they're not quite ready for heaven, but they're still saved. And you know what? That's okay if they want to believe that. The reality is, though, God's ref- God is a refining fire. And when I leave this earth, he will purify me. I believe his love will purify me. Okay, so I have no problem with being purified. I have a problem with trying to set up a man-made system that says you can serve you serve out your time here. And and by the way, if you'll just donate a hundred bucks or buy these indulgences, you can get Uncle Joe out early. Okay, I don't believe I don't believe that. I, I know I'm making light of it. God forgive me. I'm not trying to make light of it. I love my friends. I, I there's much beauty in the Catholic Church. I'm not trying to make light of it. But I just disagree with it, okay? And I don't believe the early Christians agreed with it either. Yes. They say they're in purgatory, but they ain't. They're long gone. They're long gone. So the realities are here. What? There'd be a bunch of people doing that for their loved ones if that was the case. (laughs) Well, there were. They they built the Vatican on it. Um, (laughs) So what I want you to hear is that tradition's not a bad thing. We just need to know: is it the tradition of God or is it the tradition of men? That's what we need to know. Paul's saying, pay attention to our apostolic traditions. They have been taught to us by God. That's what he's saying. They have been taught to us by God. So the only way you and I can figure out if some church tradition is of God or is of Scripture, we don't, we don't necessarily want to turn to the New Testament. Because the New Testament wasn't written and in force at the time of the first 300 years of Christianity. It was being evolved into what would officially become the book of the New Testament and have official role as scripture. And that took a process of almost 300 years. So there was this apostolic rule in the church. The bishops who took over from the apostles and the bishops who took over from those bishops, you see where it was kind of passed on. And it's a fair question for us to look at anything today and say, how do we trust that? Is it a tradition of God or is it a tradition of men? Because there's many traditions. It's a tradition to have the Lord's Supper. Even though Jesus says he commands it, you know, do this in memory of me, it's still a tradition that we use bread, unleavened bread, or is it regular leavened bread? Now, there's an argument, okay? Uh, And and not all Christians agree on that. Uh, Is it... it, uh, Red wine or is it white wine? Red grapes or white grapes? The Bible doesn't say, you know. Well, you say, oh, well, red's the color of Jesus' blood. You know, maybe that makes more sense. Well, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. So we can't just appeal to the New Testament on everything, but we can look at tradition and say, what did the early church do? More and more, I, I want to train you to think, what did the early church do? Well, and back then they didn't have so there's an option. They, they did there. have yeast. They did have yeast. Oh, they did? Yeah, they did. I, I don't know. I don't know when yeast was discovered, but they had it. Because that was what the whole Passover thing was. They got rid of the yeast for the periods of unleavened bread. Yeah, because they didn't yeah. use it in the bread. It's a fascinating thought that most of all of Western Christianity, most all of it, uses unleavened bread. Because that's what the Jews did in Passover. They swept the house of yeast and used it. 
But the earliest records we have in ancient Christianity and still in Eastern Christianity today, they use leavened bread because it's the exact opposite of everything the Jews were trying to do in the Passover, that Christ is the superabundant bread. It's superabounding and that it is, he is the bread of life and it's not an unleavened bread, it's a bread full of fullness. And yeast rises and so good. So did Christ. That's right. He's risen. He's the risen bread. Um, so anyway, again, so traditions. Those are traditions, okay? We have to discern. Is it, is it before we get dogmatic about things, is it tradition of God or tradition of men? Well, I've run out of time almost. Let me give you a thought here. This isn't the last time Paul uses that word. I told you we would get into reading the first few verses of chapter 3. Let's go a little bit further here. In the first... It says in the first five verses of chapter three, finally, brethren. So here's his, you know, this is like when the preacher says, now in closing. (laughs) But this is a pretty short little final here. It doesn't go on, on and on. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed on in the and triumph as it did among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things which we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ And then I want you to notice in verse 6, even though that kind of starts another section here, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is living in idleness and not in accord with the, what's the word there? Tradition. Tradition that you received from us. Mine says teaching. And the word is tradition. If we go back into the Greek, there's no doubt it's about tradition, okay? So my, I guess my point is here, I see that he had to bring it up again. And we'll get into chapter 3 a little more next week, but I want you to hear these last, these first five verses of chapter 3. He's praying for them to pray for us. This, the, the relationship between Paul and the church is one of mutual prayer. I pray, he prays for them constantly. He needs them to pray for him. We, I need you to pray for my ministry. I, I can't do ministry without the Lord. I can't do ministry without your prayers. Um, it's a mutual <laughs> relationship. Okay, The body of Christ needs each other to build one another up. But he's specifically, he wants them to pray that God will speed on their mission and give them victory be, and to protect them from wicked and evil men because that just goes to show you that even in the church, yes. even in the church, there are false teachers talked about that. Um, but but verse 3 is the key. But God is faithful, and he will do it. Now, let's let that be our last word on that. I want to close with a time of prayer, and I, I want to specifically pray uh, this morning for Jerry. As most of you know, Jerry was diagnosed with cancer on his kidney. We don't know the extent of it yet. He knows it's there. But we do know that we serve a great God. And he goes to the doctor tomorrow to have that, uh, to kind of look at it and just see what the next steps are. 
He doesn't even know yet what the next steps are. Jerry. Jerry right here. Jerry Riggs. Sorry. One of our, one among us, Jerry. Sorry, I didn't mention the other name. <laughs> Jerry. I, you couldn't tell I was looking at Jerry. Um, I just think this is a beautiful opportunity to stop and pray. I've brought my anointing oil. The book of, the, one of the commandments in the scripture, the book of uh, James says, is any of you sick? Then call the elders together and anoint them with oil. And the prayer of faith will make the sick one well. That's what it says. Now, how is God going to make Jerry well? I don't know. But I know he will, yeah. one way or another. Because God always heals. One way or another, God always heals. Sometimes that healing is when we go to heaven. But but we ask for that healing right here on earth. So we're going to ask for God's intervention. Uh, you know, I told Jerry, Jerry told me the story that he had a hip hurting and that he finally went to the doctor and they did an MRI and it was through the MRI of the hip that they found the spot on the kidney. Had no symptoms yeah. of the kidney cancer. Yeah. But I, I believe in God's providential care that it was God's providence that found that. So let's let's stop and, and pray. I'm going to just ask any of you that want to, you're welcome to come lay hands upon Jerry. We believe that there is, God has called us to do these. This is a tradition, by the way. It's a good example of tradition. The anointing of oil is a tradition. It's a tradition of God, though, because God calls us to do it. And the oil, we know, is a symbol of God's healing poured on wounds. We know it's a symbol of His Holy Spirit that comes to heal and so now I'm going to anoint you, Jerry, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father God, we come before you today as your children. We've gathered together in your spirit and in your word as the people of God, the body of Christ, your children. We lift together our brother Jerry, your servant. We ask for a healing touch upon him. Lord, whether that is miraculously, divinely, that when they go in there, the cancer's gone, or whether that is just through a healing process of surgery or, or a process of, of treatments, we don't know how. We don't even presume to tell you how to do your will. Your will says, your, your, your word tells us to pray, and so we pray for healing. Your word says you have not because you ask wrongly. So we want to ask for this, believing you've placed it in our heart to ask for this. In Jesus' strong name, the fullness of the, of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we pray this evening for Jerry now. And your supernatural peace upon him and upon Dorothy and all their family to walk through this valley with him. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit. One God forever and ever. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry. And I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at bradreillyministries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as He forms His Spirit within you.